One of the things that I personally have appreciated in Hebrews the most, and one of the things that has made it feel just tailor-made for our current moment is the kind of overriding image it uses to speak about the life of faith. And the image that it uses is actually drawn from the story of God and purposely show, it, it, purposely so, it's showing the continuity between how God deals with his people and how people tend to deal with God. And so the image that it's drawing from is the image of God's people in the Old Testament, Israel, being brought out of slavery in Egypt, being rescued, the ex, the events of the Exodus is being brought out, and then particularly emphasizing the journey from that moment of salvation and liberation into the wilderness, into this season of great contention between the people of God and God, ultimately moving toward the promise that God had made that he was bringing them somewhere, that there was a destination to this journey, namely the promised land. And the author of Hebrews picks this up and says that so too is our experience as followers of Jesus, very much marked by these same movements, that we have been rescued, we have been saved, that the events that have brought us into relationship with God are actually behind us. Those are things that have happened, that our faith in many ways is a faith that looks over our shoulder at saving events, namely, specifically, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And yet, that saving work has not found its full completion because there are things yet promised to us. We are journeying somewhere. And what I love about that is just, and we'll see this again in this passage, I just really, for lack of a better word, I appreciate the honesty of that. That the book of Hebrews says that the life of faith feels more like wilderness than it does promised land. That it is more marked by struggle, it is more marked by the need for perseverance and endurance than it is marked by a sense of full satisfaction, by a, by a sense of, as this passage will say, and hopefully you heard it as Jess was reading, this promise of rest, 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 rest. This passage, if you were listening closely, and even as I read through it again, is actually kind of a difficult one to follow, even approaching it this week. I was like, okay, what is the author saying here? Let me just give you the argument uh, and, and why sort of the building of the argument that the author is doing here. Because here's, but here's, here's where we're going to land, ultimately, is that, and, and this started last week in, in the prior passage, but really what the author is trying to tell us here is he's defining for us where we are headed. He's defining what is promised land for the people of God now. Where where are the various struggles and trials of our lives? Where are they moving towards? And why is it worth it for us to persevere and not fall short of that promise in the way that Israel did? You hear that throughout these couple passages here is don't be like the people of God in those stories, an entire generation of which did not enter the promise precisely because of a lack of faith, precisely because of a lack of perseverance, because of how difficult wilderness was. And this is where we can't 
What the author of Hebrews does not want us to do is so deeply separate ourselves from those stories to say, oh, those people just didn't get it. Oh, those people just lack faith. No, those people lacked faith precisely because of the difficulty of the circumstances that they were in. And oftentimes, empathy and sympathy for these stories only arises when we find ourselves in a similar place of ongoing suffering that makes us begin to doubt the purposes of God, the goodness of God in our life. And so if you haven't arrived at that place of doubt yet, if you haven't arrived at that at that need for perseverance yet, in some ways, even pastorally, I feel the need to say, just wait. Because almost all of us will arrive at a place where our faith is deeply challenged by the difficult circumstances of life. What the author of Hebrews is trying to get at here is, is he's going to say to us, there's need for perseverance because this is where you're headed. And where we're headed very much defines, therefore, what we need to be now. That's what this passage is getting at. So let's work through it here. So the, just to go back a little bit into the passage that we were in last week, starting at the top of chapter 4, it says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. That's the kind of thesis statement of this chapter. For, listen to the link between us and that story. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listen. That's faithful listening. That's responsive listening. For we who have believed entered that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, is from Psalm 95 that we looked at last week, they shall not enter my rest. There is a kind of faithlessness. There is a kind of disobedience that does not arrive at the end. That is cut off from the promise. Many, many times throughout the book of Hebrews, very simple ideas of once saved, always saved, of an easy conversionism, of cheap grace will be challenged. Get used to that from this letter. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. So it's saying that just because the people failed to live into this promise does not mean that the promise maker himself has backed away. This is the first hint of grace in this passage. It's extraordinary that though the people of God so often go astray, God's promises stand. He does not pull back the promise. It's the first argument the author is making. Instead, he appoints today. In other words, this offer is still is still as valid today as it's ever been. This is why the New Testament is constantly saying things like, today is the day of salvation. Today is the only time that one can have full assurance that we ourselves are part of the faithful people of God. And yet it's always available. There's always an offer of repentance. Every day of our lives is today. Because the promise of God is always being renewed by him in spite of the renewal of our disobedience and unfaithfulness. He points a day saying through David, so this is a little bit later than the events of the Exodus. He says, listen, even David, God renewed this promise through David. So long afterward, in the words already quoted today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Verse 8. Now, this is where a little bit of knowledge of the Old Testament comes in. Again, remember, this book is called Hebrews because it is almost certainly written to a largely Jewish Christian audience. 
the author is assuming some knowledge of names and places. Like there, there are certain assumptions because most of us grew up in and around American culture. There are certain references that I can make that I don't need to explain as much to someone who is not part of our culture. And so I can say Lincoln and not have to explain I'm probably talking about our 13th president rather than, you know, a car or something like that, right? Like there's, I don't know why Lincoln came to mind, but like, right, he's talking about their shared history here. But this stuff doesn't jump out as much to us. Verse 8, so for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Who's Joshua? Joshua is the one who after the people were in the wilderness and after they were cut off from the promised land, that generation that was cut off, Moses himself included. Again, we looked at all that last week. Then the leader of the people of God at a human level becomes Joshua. And Joshua is actually the one who leads the people into the promised land, vanquishes the enemies of God imperfectly. So the book of Joshua is one of the messiest books in the entire scriptures because this does not go as God had commanded them. But it is Joshua who ultimately brings them into this, this locale, this literal place and destination of the promised land. And what he's saying here is, well, if that was the fulfillment of that promise that the people of God could enter the rest of God, that if the rest of God was merely that place, was God's people step foot in the promised land, then why is God still offering that rest when his people have already arrived there? The author's saying there's clearly a deeper promise that has not been fulfilled in spite of what Joshua himself did. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, all of that was to say, all of that a lot of Old Testament stuff in there. Kind of all that you need to take from that is verse 9. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered, now he's going to define that, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. This is, see, it's, it's, not, like, it's not an easy thing to follow. What's being get, gotten at here is that the promise of rest, though the people showed up in the promised land, was not fully what God had intended it to be. And this is not because, and we can just say this in almost all these cases, this is not because of the unfaithfulness of God, this is because of the unfaithfulness of his people. That there is a kind of rest that is supposed to be part of the human experience that is lacking. And so it's still on offer. It's still out ahead of us. You might have noticed that the author of Hebrews here takes us all the way back to the creation account, all the way back to God's rest. And one of the more confusing things about this chapter is he's using rest in all these different ways. Sometimes he's talking about like literal rest. Sometimes he's talking about the Sabbath. Sometimes he's talking about the rest of God. And I think that that's intentional because it's this multifaceted thing that he's pointing to. But really what's being gotten at here is that after the creation of the world, so the six days of creation, God creates this, God creates this, God creates this. Even if you're not familiar with the scriptures, you likely know that on the seventh day, God did what? He rested, right? Now, why did God rest? I can tell you why he didn't rest. He didn't rest because he was tired and exhausted. He didn't say, whoa, six days, good labor, I'm shot. Like, no, the all-powerful, almighty God didn't rest because he was exhausted, because he needed to take his Sunday nap or something. No, the rest of God is actually a far more significant and symbolic act in which God is saying, 
the way that I intended creation to be has now reached its completion. It's more like an artist signing their name to their work, saying it's now finished, it's completed. It's like after a chef preparing a meal and laying it out, them saying, now it's finally time to eat. It's that kind of rest. And what humanity was supposed to do, if you go back into this story, is that humanity was meant to extend that perfection, extend what here is being referred to as the rest of God to the four corners of the earth. And then humanity, ourselves, would then be able to, like God, sit back and having prepared the world for the presence of God, having prepared and and gone forth in God's name in full obedience to Him and extending the blessing that was in the garden to those four corners, we ourselves would then enter His rest. Again, what goes wrong in that story is nothing about God. It's everything about us as human beings. Where we, instead of pushing forward in obedience instead of persevering, instead of bringing with us in obedience to God that blessing to the four corners of the earth, our first parents and each of us in turn says, no, I want to go about things for myself. I want to be about my glory. I want to be about my achievement. I want to build my own kingdom. Why do I have to build his kingdom when I could have a little bit of this world? I can craft out a little corner of this world and that's how the whole thing becomes a mess until there is this moment where Humanity actually comes together, and instead of extending blessing, they're trying to go up. Tower of Babel, that's the story. And instead of rest, what we sow as humanity is this restlessness that goes to every single part of who we are as people. This restlessness that we have to build, that we have to secure our own future, that we have to secure our own peace, that we have to work hard enough to earn a little bit of time away in order to get some relief. And then we find the harder we work, the less we're actually finding that rest. And so this restlessness of heart and soul becomes the human story instead of us entering the rest of God. What's amazing is the offer of that rest still stands. That's what this is saying. It hasn't left. It is still possible. In fact, we have whispers of it throughout the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 12 when the people are moving into the promised land. This is how God describes them setting up worship to God. He says, you shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. He says, there's a different way of doing things when we get into the promised land. For you have not as yet come to the rest and the inheritance that the Lord God is giving you. Again, this is Deuteronomy 12, starting at verse 8. This is super early in the scriptures. But when you go over the Jordan and live in that promised land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to that place that the Lord your God will choose, you will make his name dwell there. There you shall bring all that I command you your worship, your burnt offerings, your sacrifice, your tithes. God's saying when you go into the promised land, even if it's just sort of in a microcosm, if you set up worship in such a way, you'll you'll begin to taste what I meant for you at the beginning. Isaiah 32, one of the great prophets of God, talking about new creation, talking about the final chapter in the human story says this, until the sport, the sport, the spirit is poured, there it is, upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. This is new creation language. This is why every single Disney movie and 
including the new one, Raya and the, the Dragon. Uh, this is why every single movie ends with new creation, ends with, with a, a, a barren place becoming a forest. They're borrowing from the scriptures. Listen to language, though. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field, and the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. The restlessness of soul, the sense of I can never get ahead, the sense of this world never, I'm never enough, this world never feels like enough, is being defined for us as, yes, that's because you're not home yet. You have not entered that rest. Here's what I think that the argument of this passage is, and and here's what I would have you uh, carry away, at least from this, this first section here, is that rest in the here and now is necessary, but always partial. It's necessary, but it's always partial. You see, this passage is not necessarily about the Sabbath. It is not necessarily about how we take weekly or or occasional rest. But, But we certainly can't not see that here. Because there are promises made to us as the people of God that we will find restoration of soul as we go to Jesus as we as we talked about throughout D course this entire semester there is an abiding in Christ that restores the soul there's an abiding in him that does bring a kind of rejuvenation to get back out there and yet that is always partial this side of us because look this has not changed what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that rest in God the rest of God is not some ethereal state. It's not some aura that we head into. It's a place. It's where we're going. It's a destination. It will arrive one day. But even as we offer, are offered that promise, we hear, but we are not there yet. Think of even Jesus' words, how Jesus himself talked about rest. Right? This sounds lovely. All, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Oh. For, then what does he say? My yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's like a very interesting sequence of promises. I will give you rest because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know what a yoke is? It's the thing you you put over beasts of burden in order to get them to go in the same direction when they're working. Do you know what a burden is in the way that Jesus is talking about it? It's that kind of burden. It's a beast of burden. It's something that you pull. Jesus is saying, come to me and I'll give you rest because I'll yoke you to something far less aggressively wearisome than what you tend to yoke yourself to in this world. And the burden that you will have to carry is no longer the burden of securing your own identity, proving yourself to everyone, uh, achieving something that you've put out ahead of you. No, what I ask you to carry is far lighter. But do you notice he's still asking us to work? Those are like very interesting images to combine with the promise of rest. Why? Because the scriptures, because our Savior, because Hebrews is really honest about what faithfulness requires of us in this life. 
Yes, there's rest. Yes, we need connectedness to Jesus. But that's in order that we might continue to persevere. And that, more often than not, feels like work. It is a burden. Praise God, though, that it's a light burden. It is a yoking. But praise God that we're no longer yoked to the sinful, half-hearted, idolatrous pursuits of this world, but to Jesus. But there is work to be done. Do you hear that? Later on, the author of Hebrews, I love this, in, in one of the weirdest phrasings in the translation struggle to say it, in Hebrews 10, he'll say, you have need of perseverance. You have to persevere. And that's hard in this life. You know why it's hard? Because this world is set against your faithfulness. Because every single culture everywhere is not set up to make faithfulness to Jesus easy. You know why else it's hard? Because we remain in these fleshly bodies that are opposed to the purposes of God. And so inactivity is often a moving backwards. Unattentiveness to faithfulness is often a step backwards in that perseverance. And so rest is necessary, but it's always partial. This is where uh, I think, and, and hear all of my caveats on this, but Two things that I saw this week that just so deeply stood out to me was, one was uh, in a column on the opinion page of the New York Times, and one was an article in the New Yorker. And they were both talking about this rise in this idea of wellness, the wellness industry. Let me just read to you. This one is called The Empty, this is the one from the New York Times, called The Empty Religions of Instagram. And it's written by uh, a novelist, a a woman named Lee Stein. And she says, um, there's all these these surveys that have come out saying that the generation, uh, whatever generation I'm part of, what is that, millennials or something? Um, Whatever I am. Uh, She's part of that generation. She says that all of the stats say that everybody's leaving religion. And she says, but are we truly non-religious or out? Or are our belief systems too bespoke, too particular, too sophisticated to appear on a list of major religions in a Pew phone survey? That's who does these surveys. She says, I just think we found a different kind of clergy, namely personal growth influencers. She says, I began noticing how many wellness products and programs were marketed to people in pain, particularly women, and how the social media industry relies on keeping us outraged and yet engage. It's no wonder we're seeking relief. And she goes on to say that there's all of these offers, whether it's through uh, various kinds of meditation or mindfulness or different beauty products or things that help you sleep or all of these things, there seems to be this promise that you can arrive at this place, to use the language of our text, of of restfulness in, in this life. She says, I've survived the pandemic so far by performing the role of tough cookie and shielding myself with cynicism. And yet, the only times I've cried have been when religion has punctured the bubble I live in. This is, this is not a, a religious person. She says, I cried when the Reverend Raphael Warnock spoke at John Lewis's funeral. I cried when Garth Brooks sang Amazing Grace a cappella at the Biden inauguration. She says, left-wing, I'll just keep going, left-wing secular millennials, there it is, may follow politics devoutly. But the people we've chosen as our moral leaders aren't challenging us to ask the fundamental questions that leaders of faith have been wrestling with for thousands of years. Why are we here? Why do we suffer? What do we do with suffering? What should we believe in beyond the limits, check this out, of our puny selfhood? 
The whole economy of Instagram is based on our thinking about ourselves, posting about ourselves, working on ourselves. I told my mom recently that I find myself craving role models my age who are not only righteous crusaders, but also humble and merciful, and that I'm not finding them where I live, she says, online. Referring to the influencers who have filled the role of religious faith, she said, they might inspire you to live your best life, but not make the best use of your life. They might inspire you to live your best life, but not make the best use of your life. There is a chasm between the vast, this is it, vast scope of our needs and what influencers can provide. We're looking for guidance in the wrong places. Instead of helping us to engage with our most important questions, our screens might be distracting us from them. Maybe we actually need to go to something like church and the preacher said amen. Contrary to what you might have seen on Instagram, our purpose is not to optimize our one wild and precious life It's time to search for meaning beyond the electric church that keeps us addicted to our phones and alienated from our closest kin. The New York Times, right? Like, hello. Let me read you just a paragraph from this article in The New Yorker about the the same subject. This is an article called Puzzling Through Our Eternal Quest for Wellness. The author says, What distinguishes modern wellness, aside from its expansiveness, is its relentless focus on the self as the fount of all improvement. It's trickle-down wellness. The idea that if you work hard enough on your body and mind, your inner glow will leak out of your fingertips and touch the world. She goes on in in that article to explain that actually where the whole idea of self-care and those ideas came from was actually the civil rights movement where people began to realize if we don't, right, rest is necessary, but it's temporary. Those are people who understood that rest was, was partial at best, and yet they began to realize if we don't take care of ourselves, if we don't find ways to restore, now that has been co-opted into this privileged thing of we should all arrive at this great place of peacefulness and wellness, this side of what's actually offered us. Look, there is a temptation as Christians right now. Christianity, what it always does, is, or what we as the people of God always try and do, is we take Christianity and then we take a little bit of, of what the cult- culture offers us and we hope that they're compatible. And I fear, and look, there's a place for mindfulness. There's a place for resting. There's a place for whatever, good beauty products and all that stuff. So don't hear me. This is not, but when we syncretistically, that's a fancy word, where we say we mix these religions and we say, well, maybe the religion of Jesus is a means to wellness. It's a means to rest. I should never feel anxious again. I should never struggle again. And maybe I do that if I just believe this ad with a little bit of Jesus pulled in, this product with a little bit, this practice, and a little bit of also spiritual practice. And I think that that's to do a disservice to what the book of Hebrews is telling us, which is, no, you're in the wilderness. Yes, rest, but rest in Jesus so that you might be faithful and obedient to him. Because here's what always happens when that syncretism, when that combining of religions happens, is we end up bowing to the wrong one ultimately. And we leave Jesus because he will not seemingly provide for us what the next Instagram ad says that it can provide for us. This says I don't have to be anxious. This says that I don't have to be broken. This says that I can arrive at full self-actualization. Where are you, Jesus? You don't provide that. And Jesus says, I never promised you that. I promised you that I would put a yoke on you and a burden. You'd have to pull it. And it's headed somewhere. But it's not here today. 
That's a hard thing to say. I wish that I could tell you Jesus provides more peace and comfort and wellness than anything that this... He says, yes, I will, but I will to get you to the end. That's my purpose for you. So that one day, yes, you can enjoy it in its fullness. Let us, therefore, Jacob's well, verse 11, strive to enter that rest. Strive to enter that rest. Again, this is picking up on the language of Jesus. Yeah, enter the rest, but it takes a striving to get there so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Listen to these two verses. You might have even memorized these and not realized, why are they here? It's like, why are they at the end of this passage? For the word of God is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. What a happy, clappy way to end this pastor, right? Like, what is going on here? And maybe you've memorized this to say, oh, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. As though that's supposed to comfort us. Saying it, why does it say it's sharper? What's a two-edged sword? It's like a sword sword. It's like a sword that you think about. That's sharp on this side and it's sharp on this side. So whether you go like this or like this, you don't have to remember which side is it. You know, it's, it's sharp on both sides. Why say that? And then it's saying it, it penetrates. It gets through. It pierces. This is violent, wild language to talk about what the Word of God is. This is like some, you know, some, some battle stuff going on here. The word of God is living and active and it, and it gets in, it pierces. Then it goes on to say that no creature, or uh, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. By the way, this is not some like anatomy of, of a person. This is saying those two things are so closely held together biblically that they're almost the same thing. It's just saying this is how, this is how sharp, this is, this is how, how much it can pierce specifically into things. Piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now check this out, verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his, that's God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Naked and exposed. This word exposed here, right, it's easy to hear it as going along with nudity. Obviously it does. But really the word that's being gotten at here is exposed is the thing that happens. Picture someone who's in a headlock and is being brought back, right? You might be kind of a, a UFC person or something. And they're being pulled back and they're right before they tap out or whatever. It's the exposed. It's literally the word that's used here is the exposure of the neck, and so it's, it's the, the way that it would have been used. Again, think of these are people culturally aware of the Old Testament. These are people who have been to the temple. Really what this is, is when the priest pulls back the head of a thing to be sacrificed. Sorry, kids. And, and right? Like, uh, you get the point. And, and uh, right? That's what's being talked about here. It's saying that's what the Word of God does to all of us. Why is that a comforting promise? It's not meant to be. These are warnings. This is serious stuff. And yet it's saying, if you'll listen, that sword can become a scalpel to your life. Because the question becomes, given all of that, so how do I persevere? How am I going to do this? How do I get through the wilderness? How am I faithful? How do I know that I'm doing the things that God would do? And the answer that so far, four chapters into Hebrews that we have received again and again and again is, listen, listen, pay attention. 
And let me make that more practical. Don't walk out of here unchanged, follower of Jesus. Don't sit under the word for years and never, ever apply it because you say, that one wasn't for me. Or I can kind of rationalize my way out of that time. If you are sitting under the preaching of the word of God with any kind of consistency and are unchanged by it, the problem is clearly not the word of God. It is you. It is your responsiveness to it. And so we should tremble if a thing that is meant to pierce to the very soul of who we are has absolutely no impact on us. Because you got two choices of how this, this, this piercing work, of how this exposure, of how being fully naked before God works. It either becomes... There's two times where a body is splayed out and examined. One is when you're examining a body that is apparently diseased and you're trying to diagnose what's wrong in order to heal it. you got to go in and look around. Some of you have had this experience. It's a harrowing experience. It's a terrifying thing. But the one other time that a body is splayed out to figure out what's going on in it is when? After death in an autopsy to figure out what led to this body being in the state that it's now in. The Word of God will either expose you as a diagnosis of what you most need, or it will expose you when you stand before the one to whom you must give an account for that unresponsiveness to the Word of God. You hear that? Which will it be? To be exposed to be pulled back, to be laid out bare in light of what the scriptures call you to, to have your unfaithfulness called out, to have your sin called out, to have your hardness of heart called out. Yeah, it's a harrowing experience. It's not easy. It takes a lot of courage. And yet you only got one other option because it will do that to all of us one day. Here's the incredible news. The Word of God is not just the Bible. The way that the New Testament uses the Word of God is so often, as it is here in Hebrews, to actually speak not just of this written Word, but to speak of the one who was the Word. John 1. Let me give you a little hope. Let me give you a little promise behind those hard words. Is there is one who is fully naked and exposed. There is one who is pierced There is one who stood and he stood in your place, was pierced in your place, was exposed and made naked in your place. This is the one beckoning you. This is your great physician. This is the one, right? Like what you want in that moment. was just talking to someone going through horrible medical stuff and the thing you most want in that moment is someone who gets it and someone who really knows what they're doing. Someone who's going to be kind and gentle and empathetic to you, who has bedside manner, call it. But also, you want an expert. You want to know that you are being opened up by the one who fully understands what they're looking for and who can actually do something about it. Do you realize that one is the very one that we're told to listen to? That one is the very one now beckoning you to say, will will you listen to my voice? Will you listen? Do you know that I'm the great? Do you know that I get it? Do you know that I'm perfectly empathetic? Do you know that I've been through this? Do you know that I, what, I know what it feels like to become sin and to have the word of God to be pierced because of that? And do you know I'll be gentle? Do you know I'll take care of you? 
Do you know that I'm with you in the wilderness? Do you know that I care enough to actually take everything that could threaten you not getting ultimately to true wellness and health, to true rest? I'll do everything it takes if you'll only allow me, if you'll only respond, if you'll only show up to the appointment and allow me to do the work that only I can do. You see, we're not alone in this journey. That's where we head from here. That's where we head on Good Friday and Easter. Just so happens by the providence of God, this next chunk that we'll be in answers the question, am I alone in this? Or is there provision in the wilderness? And praise God there is, and there's already a whisper of it, even in these violent images that end this. Will you listen to the word of God today? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the one who is pierced for our transgressions, as the prophet says. Lord, that you were exposed such that we can be covered. That you were utterly and totally silenced such that we now have the great privilege of listening and responding to what you say beyond the grave, to what you say beyond that silencing. So Lord, help us to hear your voice. God, where your spirit is convicting us even now in specific ways, I pray that we would not harden to that. Lord, help us to see you as the great physician whose word pierces, but it pierces to heal. And God, as we are in the wilderness, Lord, give us that rest, but help us not to put the full weight of our hope on this world. You never intended us to. In fact, one of the last things you said to your disciples was, in this world you will have trouble. But I've overcome the world, so take hope. God, give us that hope even today of what awaits us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How appropriate uh, that we would end our time as we've been doing these last couple weeks wonderfully 